Hey, Angela here. Before we begin this episode, I'd like to invite you to join our Substack community, where you'll get more founder profiles, exclusive behind-the-scenes content, first access to all my original work, and access to our community group chat. All you have to do is click the link in the description. I love and appreciate your support. It's awesome to see all your comments, email responses, and reactions. I'm happy to share this journey with you. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Honey and Hustle, a video podcast that inspires the dreamers, creators, and hustlers to make a business from their passions. I'm Angela Hollowell, and I'm a visual storyteller based in Durham, North Carolina. I sit down with creative entrepreneurs, nonprofit founders, and small business owners as they share their stories, the lessons they've learned throughout their careers, and how they've worked to make a positive impact. Hey everyone, we are filming season three of the Honey and Hustle podcast live at the Durham Bottling Co. right in downtown Durham. We're about to get into a great conversation, but before we do that, I'd really appreciate it if you take a moment to share this episode with someone who you think might get some value from it. Feel free to tag me on the podcast on social media, and I'll be sure to put those links on the video and in the description below. If you're listening to the show, please consider leaving us a review on Podchaser, Apple Podcast, or Spotify. It helps others find the show and lets me know how I'm doing at this video podcast thing. If you'd like to support the show, be sure to check out our affiliate links, shop our merch, and subscribe to the Honeypot newsletter and this YouTube channel, all at the links in the description. Without further ado, let's get into it. So when it came to, and I do want to touch on you guys a little bit more, but, you know, we'll get on something a little more soft and then we'll come back. Um, so when it came to creating Refugal Book Cafe, what was kind of that first conversation like between you guys when you were like, hey, we want to create a space here that provides literature, provides education around African American history, African history, black history in America, black authors, celebrates black artists in that sense? That's your question, my question? Yes. Oh my goodness. Um, I have been incubating the idea for a few... Are we recording already? Yeah. Okay, I wasn't oh, sure. Geez. I was like, <laughs> like, like oh, yeah, okay. I, I uh, thought this was, you know, warm-up. No, but um, here we go. Yeah, I had been incubating the idea for a few for a number of years, I think, informally since about 2013 okay. when I was in another city and I went into um, um, it was another like establishment that had a, a book cafe model mm-hmm. and at the time I was so broke um, I it was like I had I was 21 I was 21 or 22 and I was just visiting and, and happened to, to go there and I was like oh my gosh maybe one day I'll do something like this but it was so far out of my mind because I, I, I mean, I dropped out of college, I was working odd jobs um, in Arizona, and um, so I was like, there was, it was not in my mind that I would even own a thing one day, so it was one of the things that you say, but you have no idea whether or not, you're not even thinking whether or not it might even be possible to actualize, but so informally, I think it's something that I've been incubating since like 2013, mm-hmm. when, I, when I went to that spot. Um, in the time between, formally, I'll say, um, I started to actually pen down and put together on paper 
um, looking at spaces, mm -hmm. thinking about what infantry might look like, thinking about you know, how much does a fridge cost? How much does an espresso machine cost? Thinking about those things and writing it down and begin formalizing a business plan in 20, 2017, 2018. And by then, a lot had changed. I wasn't quite so broke. Um, but I'd also moved to Durham. Yeah. And I was living, uh, at the time I was living kind of, I don't know how people talk about that area, but you know, Roxborough and Club, and I was moving to East Durham because I had just bought a house there, mm -hmm. and um, so, so yeah, so that is around the time that I think I began to formalize like a few and actually be like, am I going to do this, or allow myself to think that it, were, it was possible. Like I a lot of change, I wasn't quite so broke, but I also didn't have business money. Mm -hmm. um, I had some savings, I had a steady nine to five, uh, but like what I would need in resources, I just didn't have, I knew I didn't have it. but. I, I don't know what it was that clicked for me in that time, I couldn't tell you. I don't have like some motivational story around it, but I, I, I allowed myself to begin to put it together. And the way that I did that was I was like, I know I'm, I don't have the money and I know I may never have the money. Mm -hmm. And if I, if, I, if I allow myself to stop here, it's definitely not gonna come together. So I've got to try and make the thing like I have the money. And so what does it look like to put it together, to put it down on paper, like I have the money or like I'm going to get the money or like someone will be leaving me enough to give me some money. So that's, that's what I did. Um, and in between that, between 2013 and 2017, 2018, um, you know, you, you probably read the things. I, I had been collecting books um, mm -hmm. uh, in the US, um, I've been finding and like obscure little tucked away bookstores in London. I was also um, doing a lot of book collecting at home, just going through my mom's personal archive, but you know, finding back rooms and um, book selling spaces and in, in, in like Hatfield and Pretoria. Mm -hmm. um, looking on the inside of like jacket covers and finding publisher information for um, books that, you know, had gone out of print and ca actually calling people. And, it turns out that a lot of folks, depending on the book, um, a lot of publisher information is just their cell phone number. So when you call someone, you know, you get some guy who was running a press or a printing press in the 80s, and that's, in one instance, that's, I, I ended up meeting this guy, Mike, um, who had published a lot of um, Eskim Patel's work, who's a prolific um, South African writer, but he had published a lot of it out of his home. And so when I called it, it, he was, it was just his cell phone number. And um, he's like, come to my house and come see what I have. And so I was like, this is weird. But mm -hmm. I called my friend and I took her. We went to Bryanston. Mm -hmm. I was like, I got to go to this man's house. I don't know who he is, but he said he's got some books. So yeah, we drove to Bryanston and that's how I ended up meeting him. And so it was, it, it was, it was an interesting exercise. It was a years long exercise. So that by the time you know, I'm actually putting together the business plan, I've been doing that for some years. I have an, a collection that Oh, and I think it's interesting. Needs some work, but I think it's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, of course, with book collecting, it's a lifetime thing. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going for volume. More, I was more so going for quality. And right. um, so, so at that point is when I I meet Naledi, or a year later, I meet Naledi in 2019. I have this kind of scraggly book collection. I know that I'm trying to put together a bookstore um, and a cafe. I've done a lot of the legwork to kind of dream the cafe space because I know 
Um, I have a few friends in coffee, and I had conversations with them. Mm -hmm. And but I didn't. I had a feeling about how I wanted the bookstore to feel, right? Like I wanted. I'd imagined a thing that was like, what happens if you take literature from as far as the black world reaches, which is everywhere in the world, and you pick some of the, the best classics, and you pick some of the more interesting emergent writers, contemporary writers, and you put them all in one room, and you do a thing. Like, what does it look like? And so that was, that was my feeling. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know how I was going to execute. I, had, I, just, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Um, and I'm glad I didn't think too much about it, because I think I would have been discouraged. When I met her in 2019, I went. I visited her at her house, and I think the first night I was there, I'm looking around, I'm looking at all these books. She got books on the floor, books and nooks, books everywhere. And I'm looking, and it occurs to me that I'm like, oh my gosh, the thing, that feeling, it's happening like right here in this space. She's doing it already in, in the way that she reads and her reading practice and the ways that the books are splayed all over the place, and some of them are stacked really nicely. And it was really interesting. And so I did, I, 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 was, I looked at her and I was like, huh, I think I'm gonna ask her if she would come on and consult for, for the book cafe. And mm -hmm. then I like worked up the courage to do it by the second meet. And I was like, hey, I'm doing this thing. I don't know if you'd be open to it, but I think you would be a great, you know, person to consult on like building up thing. And it was interesting because you know when you talk to people about stuff, some folks would be like, okay, yeah, that's great, but it's but are skeptical. And she was just like, yeah, I'll totally do that. And, I'm, and I was like, I don't know if she, if she just believes in me like that. I don't know if she's naive, but she didn't ask any questions. She was like, yeah, I'll do it. And so, um, and so then, yeah. And then a year later, she she was the co she co-founded it with me. Um, and and I think that that made sense. That was a, a natural progression because I think as we, we were kind of talking about it, as she, as she watched me doing the thing, and a lot of times we were leaning on each other, and a lot of, um, we were talking through it, and it made sense that it's, I was like, I'll be here to consult. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it was a formal conversation, but it just made sense that, that it was, it, it had become, it had become a thing that had grown past, like, my vision for it, mm -hmm. and, um, and that's fine, and that's great. I'm, I'm so grateful. Um, I think that, uh, it's really hard to, like, meet folks in entrepreneurship that you feel really good about, like, being like, okay, you can take it farther than I can than I can on my own, mm -hmm. and so yeah, that's the that's the long story of it. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. I think sometimes like this is just a great example of like how your dreams are bigger than just you. Mm -hmm. You know, they're meant to be shared, and now <coughs> you share this with her, and she's like, oh yes, let me add to this, let me grow this in a way that feels natural, in the natural progression of what you already feel and yeah. you're thinking and dreaming about. So, now that he, what did you ever see yourself going into entrepreneurship? Did you ever see yourself owning a bookstore before talking with? Well, I was always supposed to own a bookstore. Okay. That was the main question. I think everybody who knows me knows that I have a deep and kind of enduring relationship with books. Okay. Uh, my mother's a librarian, so I was kind of raised around books. I was raised in libraries. I was raised in, in, in a family that still maintains like traditions of storytelling and folk tales and that sort of thing. Yeah. So I was really raised with a fundamental appreciation of just good storytelling. My my family got, you know, storytellers. Mm -hmm. Um and so it, it that that's always been 
a thing that I imagined that I would do. I, I didn't, I don't think that I had as clear vision as perhaps uh, Budumelo had. And so I think initially when I came on, I didn't even think about it because I was, you know, I was head over heels in love at the time. I was just like, oh my goodness, I'll do anything. Um, so I didn't really think about it. It wasn't even a, you know, this, I didn't give it a second thought. Okay. Um, this was a person that I met and I liked and I trusted. Mm -hmm. And so if they wanted to do a thing, of course I'd do it. But also it's, it, it's, it's, it would be a thing that I already enjoy anyway. Right. Um, and so I came on and even the way that I eventually become co-founder is just helping somebody that you care about make a thing in the world that they have been dreaming about, you see them working hard, and it just makes sense for you to just lend a hand and then before you know it, you're in it fully and it, <laughs> it makes sense for you to just commit. Okay. And, and, and that was just how things progressed. But it was hard work to put Rafiwa together and I don't think the two of us speak about that enough. It sounds like things just fell into place because, you know, it, it was a thing that was destined to happen, right? And this is often the story of entrepreneurship, that um, somebody had a calling somewhere and then things just fell into place. It was a lot of hard work, a lot of tears, a lot of fighting because we're two very different people. We approach the world very differently. I approach the world as an artist. And so I think um, everything tends to be somewhat romantic from my end. And I think, and I think Budumelo is a realist, and so sometimes we butt heads. And, and that's fruitful because it often means that we emerge with, with new and interesting ideas because I think they, they reflect our very different personalities. Mm -hmm. I think you can see that very clearly in Rofiwa, particularly in how the coffee shop aspect operates mm -hmm. and how the bookstore operates. I think there's a very traditional kind of coffee shop uh, feeling to our coffee shop, right? Even the menu is pared down, it's very classic menu. Everything about it functions like a classic, no frills coffee shop. But there's chaos in the bookstore, right? You, you don't know what is going to be on the shelf on a day to day. But there's something that is very, um, how shall I put it? Um, something that, that's very um, standardized in our coffee, right? You know what kind of coffee you're going to get from Rofiwa. People are able to say this is a Rofiwa coffee, right? Mm -hmm. And they've emphasized things like training, things that I would never think about because for me, it's, you know, I go by feeling. I wake up and I'm like, oh, this book makes sense today. Yeah. Um, and so our shelves are always revolving. Our, our selection is one that's always um, changing, one that's always growing in new and unexpected ways. I'm always listening to conversations happening around us. I'm always responsive um, to what people are reading, to what is just the political currents, and that's my work. Mm -hmm. But it has to be these two very fundamentally different personalities that produce the thing that is Rufiwa. Yeah. And uh, have you guys seen Money Heist? No. No, Money Heist, where it's like these two brothers and one is like the very pragmatic, very we need a plan, very type A. And the brother is like, no, it's about the art of the steel. It's about the romanticism <laughs> of like, yeah. you know, you know, your relationship with the art and like you own it. But I think one thing that he said uh, when one of the brothers had a son that he wanted to bring in, so they're like thieves, and he wanted to bring his son in, and uh, he brought his son on a heist, 
and then he threw whatever they took out the window, and then the son got mad, and he's like, only a thief believes somebody else's stuff is theirs. <laughs> and so I think when you come into entrepreneurship, it's like only a person crazy enough to believe that this dream can also be mine has, has like their gall to, to go after it. So I don't know. To that extent, I think your partnership is great. <laughs> but, I have to look. What is only a thief believes? That somebody else's stuff is theirs. Huh. Yeah. It's terrible how that makes sense. It's really bad for. <laughs> yeah. 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 So it's, it's like that ownership. Now it's this your collective dream now. Mm. It's something that, like you said, didn't just pop out of thin air. You had to look for a space. You had to do, make time to research books. You had to make time to really nail down like how this coffee is going to be delivered in a no frills consistent manner so that people know what to expect when they come to the cafe. So all of these things that make it run smoothly and the trains run on time, but then also give people a unique experience that, you mm -hmm. know, is also unexpected, that meets expectations, that exceeds expectations, so yeah. within a physical space, so that's really interesting. But I want to go back to what you were saying about kind of your upbringing and your relationship with books, and, and Beth, please feel free to chime in on this, which is um, really this culture of oral history, and it's not just Africans, it's not just black people, it's, you know, all cultures have some semblance of oral history that is tied to how they remember the past, how they recognize the past, and how they uh, frame narratives around certain aspects of society and culture that are um, just traditionally passed down from generation to generation and manifest in different ways depending on the times, right? And it's a very um, interesting time in America right now where we're still finding ways to find the truth that makes sense. You know, we're in a space where people are beginning to feel like the truth is subjective when it's not. Um, the truth is, is not based on your opinion, it's not based on whether you like it or not. Mm. Um, the truth is something that can and should stand the test of time. And I think that books now, this conversation of banned books is really interesting because it's almost like a rejection of the truth. It's a rejection of reality that you don't want to accept. And so when you put together books based on conversations that you hear that are not always political, but just around anything, around you know, other experiences they may have had in a coffee shop, or um, the atmosphere that you guys have created with things not being the same, maybe they came back from another week and they're like, oh, this is different, you know? There's something different on the shelf. I was looking for this book and I'm interested in this book. Um, what are some of the ways that you, one, between yourselves have talked about storytelling and the stories that you guys want to share specifically as you were kind of bringing your collection into the mix and then you with your history of like well this is how stories have been shared to in my family this is the way that I want to reiterate that within this concept okay um I was deep I mean I yeah I mean I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to <laughs> gather everything together and then tackle it one at a time <laughs> um, um I think that one thing that I've always appreciated about black literature across, just across the world mm -hmm. is that it retains that orality of African languages, whether it's African languages in the diaspora. And, and there is, for me, there are many Englishes, mm -hmm. right? And one of the things that we spoke about, because our selection is in English, mm -hmm. was that we hoped to build a book collection that is able to capture the many Englishes and to, and to insist that black people across the world have used this language that often was weaponized 
against us, was beat into us in very violent ways, have taken it and bent it and disciplined it and made new interesting languages. So there is always, black literature always retains these oral traditions. You, you, can, you can feel it, you can, you can, you can hear it in, in how black writers write, and that's true across the world. When you, 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 are, you are currently right now reading a lot of books that are translated from French. Okay. Francophone Africa and if you read they're in translation but there's something that is very distinct about how even the French sounds in English right, right? Yeah. it's not like translating a, a Frenchman's French mm -hmm. it's like translating Francophone French mm -hmm. it sounds very distinct black so I, yeah black, black Francophone French, French. Yeah. and so I think what I'm what I wanted to address first is that often for me there is no real distinction. Mm -hmm. there, there is no sense that a, a book does not, um, that we've abandoned the oral traditions because the important work of black writers has been for many, many, for a long time, has been precisely this question of how to retain mm -hmm. the tone, the sounds of home, mm -hmm. how to retain the orality. Yeah. We might be going down that <coughs> rabbit yeah. hole because yeah. we could talk about this forever. But you know who does? You know who does it really well right now? Or Daniel Black in um, Don't Cry and, for Me. Yeah, Daniel Black in Don't Cry for Me does it really. He does a very interesting thing. The sound of 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 the father in that book and how he writes and how you hear him. Mm -hmm. um, I think. I think it's so interesting. I think if you pick up the book that I'm reading now, what is it called? Real quick, um, you have a, the beat is on the mic. Oh. Yeah, okay. I should took it, I'm gonna take it back here. United States of Africa. The United States of Africa is, is, but the United States of Africa, the way that that sounds versus how, it's a, it's a, very, it's a mocking, it's a very mocking, um, the way that it mocks, the English language mm -hmm. is, is interesting. It's a satire, um, how that sounds versus how Dog Days sounds, which is another uh, uh, francophone. Um, less mocking, but it's, it's very interesting. And then my favorite is uh, Zora Neale Hurston's Lies and Other Tall Tales. Oh. And the way that that sounds, um, and how that sounds versus when you pick up, I don't know, Toni Morrison's. Which one, Amanda? Or how yeah, or how Chimamanda sounds when you when you pick her up, and and that's why I think what Melody say like this. It's it's it, you can very practically pick up these books that we have at the bookstore, read the first three pages, and kind of understand what she means when she says there are there are different Englishes, mm -hmm. and I had to do that too because. Um, yeah, the bookstore has been really great for me to like. <laughs> Her curation has been really wonderful for me. But I'm going down a rabbit hole. But I just I always get excited about that because uh, um, traditions, oral traditions, um, are. Bef you know, one of the things that I imagined, and at some point in my life, I didn't know when it was going to happen, but I was like, I'm going to go back home, and I am going to figure out how to train myself as someone who just is like very sophisticated and understands traditional baby uh, uh, oral traditions because I wanted to be a storyteller uh, in 
the in the in the Betty oral tradition. So I'm going down rabbit holes, but what were you saying? So but I think okay. <laughs> I think what is what for me is interesting about what I what we were just talking about, about orality. I like that you came with that question uh, from that direction. Because often when people approach black literature they don't talk about all these interesting things that are happening, right? They don't talk about um, outside of the university spaces, people outside people who's, who dedicate their lives to studying literature, right? They don't talk about all these other interesting things that uh, black writers are doing that aren't just about educating you on race. Right. People are often approaching black writers, particularly in this moment, as anti-racist. Right. Black writers have been writing long before there was anti-racist work, right, as a, as a catch-all phrase for anything, really, that's done by a black person. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, that's, that was what I was interested in as well in the selection, how to build an anti-anti-racist bookstore, how to build a bookstore that refuses to do that work, but th that just invites you to engage black literature for what it is to encounter these writers in the ways that they are inviting you into their work right. um, and, and how to encounter them in conversation with one another and appreciate that there are people scattered all over the world coming from very different traditions yeah. who somehow if you look closely enough, have a conversation that maybe is pertinent to you, but you have to be willing to open up, open yourself up to that conversation. Yeah. Um, and so it, it was always, we were always working against the grain, always working against precisely this question of what it is that black literature can offer, which is often very limited yeah. in, in how people think about it. Yeah, oh man, I have so many questions, but we're going to try to break <laughs> them down. So when you talk about, first of all, just picking back on off of the last thing that you said, I was talking about, um, it reminds me of a quote from Roxane Gay. So she, is, uh, she has a master class, and one thing she said was like, as an author, specifically as a black author, as a woman author, as an author of color, you know, to not limit yourself to thinking that all you have to offer is your trauma in your writing. And that really, I think, was powerful for me when I heard it because it's like, you know, as artists, as people now, you know, it's not just limited to writers. You know, it's, it's you know, people want a mural uh, for Black History Month. You know, they want, you know, a mural for whoever, um, a painting for whoever, an art show for whatever. Um, for music artists, rappers, to talk about what's happening now in society, but we have whole lived experiences outside of this perception that of black people in America from the dominant culture, and there should be space for that as well. Like, and then there's also this onus to, um, I would say, in the workplace and within society that is placed on black people, Latino people, Asian people to educate the dominant culture about race, about our culture, about our traditions, about our way of life, that it's really taxing. It really shouldn't only be our responsibility. It's everybody's responsibility to be educated. It's everybody's responsibility to, you know, combat our own internal biases and things like that. So when we talk about creating an environment where people aren't coming in for strictly banned books. They're not coming in for the 1916 Project, just the 1916 Project. 1619. 1619, sorry. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about, though. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, they are just coming in to talk about those type of books from 
um, authors of color who have traditionally spoken about race, who have spoken about injustices in society, but just authors that talk about whatever they want, um, like Roxane Gay, um, and there's some others that I can't think of right now, but what has been, I guess, like your experience in curating the content around that, not just blacks in America, like you said, but blacks from all over the world who have these various experiences and conversations and um, ideas in different genres. Because there can be, you know, there's a Stephen King. You know, he can just be Stephen King. He's not this white American author, Stephen King. He is just like, I am, this is who I am, and these are the type of books that I write. Um, do you see that increasing in this space now for black authors and black writers? That people can just be, right? Yeah, just be that and talk about their experiences, create nonfiction, create fiction books, create in their own area of, of genius. Yeah, I think, well, firstly, we do carry the 1619 project. Yes. So we do carry that work, and, and that work is important too. Yeah. But I think the challenge is, is always to not emphasize it so much that you deprioritize, you know, works in fiction and poetry. Yeah. Um, there is often a an, an overemphasis, I think, on nonfiction, yeah. particularly, you know, around black authors. Um, but I, I, I do think that, be that as it may, I do think that even as, because our experience as just people going about our daily lives mm -hmm. is one in which we are in fact black people going about our daily lives. Mm -hmm. So even as you are not writing about race, you're always writing about race because you're always a raced person. Mm -hmm. So I think when we say that you should read the novel, we're not saying don't think about race right. because you are encountering black people. You are encountering black people living their lives, right? But it's also to encounter them as human. Um, and so I think I, I do want to say that, that it doesn't mean that people who write fiction, people who write poetry, we are always raced. We are always inside you know, our bodies and we're always encountering the world as black people. And those experiences are already always there anyway. Right. Uh, it's just not written in this way that's about you know, teaching you something and leading you by the nose to something. Right. And, and I think that's what's challenging for people because you have to sit and just get to know a person and just stay with the character for a little while in a place that you may not necessarily be familiar with. Mm -hmm. For You may be in Kenya for a little while. You may find yourself in, I don't know, in, in various different places. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's often the challenge. But, you know, I've, I've been encouraged by how people people are consuming the, the selection. Um, we don't actually get questions like, where is this writer from? Do you know what I mean? Like, I think of people read, read our books as books. Mm -hmm. I think people have surprised us in that way pleasantly. So um, there isn't a book in our on our shelves that I would say we can't sell this book. Yeah. There isn't a single title from as different as they are, as vast as you know, geographically um, the spread is, there isn't a single book that we haven't been able to move. And people said that people don't read African literature. They don't read um, literature that they're not familiar with. But it turns out that when you provide it, 
people are actually very curious about other places. Mm -hmm. People are curious about you know what crime writing looks like in South Africa. Somebody who's interested in high stories mm -hmm. is excited to find a high story from a place that they've never even heard of. Yeah. Right. And so and so they come back and they ask you, hey, do you know other African crime writers? And then they just keep going. Mm -hmm. But you have to provide that initial kind of introduction. Yeah. 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 So going back to kind of you referencing some of the different Englishes that you've encountered within your books and your own interest in going back and, and being a part of and being a contributor to this ritual history and, you know, your own version of English now. Um, when it comes to just curating and creating a space that really you're just interested in, you're passionate about, I think sometimes people get discouraged from doing that in the general space. When it comes to entrepreneurship, you know, people tell you to niche down, focus on one, three things, you know, at most, you know, and that's what's going to serve your audience best. But you're like, forget that. I'm interested in all these things, you know. So <laughs> has that been like, for you kind of being the antithesis of what people traditionally think is profitable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're creating a space that is built on this vast subject matter across the African diaspora of mm -hmm. <sighs> I think <clears throat> I'm increasingly starting to feel that um, the question that should animate entrepreneurship at every stage of your thinking and exploring entrepreneurship, right, when you go to the courses, the workshops at the Durham County Library that are like, how do you build a business plan? I'm, I'm interested in what it might look like and maybe this is just like a pipe dream maybe this is me being like a what is it called when you're not a realist <laughs> maybe i'm just daydreaming but i'm interested in what it looks like for to shape entrepreneurship when you are asking questions that are not how to how do you monetize these three things how do you do these three things really well um so that you can make a profit right. um, and, and then maybe grow in those three things and maybe add a fourth thing. But how, how might we advise entrepreneurs or how might we make a business plan or how might we create new models for business if we, if we say instead, how do we fund it? How do we continue to fund it? How might you, all of these things that you want to see happen in this space, um, yes, how do you do them sustainably, but how do we um, how do we assume that, yeah, you can see it and it works and all ten of mm -hmm. these things work well together, where are you going to get the money, right? In Rofiwa, it often means that we are looking at, like, what does funding look like when it's both, you know, you can, you can go and, and find funding that's about the business of the thing, right? Like, how are your numbers looking? Um, Sometimes it means, oh man, there's an art grant that might actually really work well for what we're trying to do. Or, um, oh look over there, there's some grant money over there for like queer folks who are. Um, so I think that I think that when you have a lot of things going on at the same time, it yes, we, there's a way that you can look at it and be like, oh my gosh, these folks are going to burn out. But it actually interestingly opens you up to a lot of different kinds of um, revenue building strategies mm. because you can be like, I'm going to take that grant. I'm going to focus this aspect of my business and tailor it toward that grant, right? Mm -hmm. And once you get the money, you can put it anywhere. You can move it. Yeah. Um, 
wherever um, wherever it makes the most sense, right? If, I mean, if you're not constrained in how you can use it. But I think that that has been the pleasant thing of putting together um, the kind of a business that is doing a lot. Um, there's, there's pulling together a lot of different kinds of aspects. There's an artistic aspect um, to Rofiwa. There's a, there's a social component to what we're what we're doing. There's a cultural component to what we're doing. Um, there is, you know, there's the business, there's the entrepreneurship of what we're doing. People come to us and they're like, how do you make these numbers work, right? There's the startup aspect to what we're doing. And so those are four or five things that I've named. That's four or five different categories of, of grant funding, of fundraising that you can do, right? Whereas if we were just a coffee shop, mm -hmm. um, if we were just a bookstore, like in the model of your traditional big box bookstore, or even you know, some of the indies, if that's all we were, it would be very difficult to stretch our capacity for fundraising in, in in, because, I mean, the truth is you do have to fundraise, like yeah. the money's got to come from somewhere. So it would be very difficult to talk about our business mm -hmm. um, um, well enough to maybe look into some of the more like the, the alternative, um, um, the alternative funds or alternative ways of thinking about fundraising. We've been able to do that because we're doing, we're doing so many different things. Um, and I don't want to say that to um, really downplay the ways that that if you're not if you don't have a pulse on what it is that you're doing, um, I don't want to downplay how that can actually run you into the ground. Mm -hmm. um, and we've had to learn, right? Because we're doing there we're doing four or five different things, but there there have been times where we've been like, okay, we maybe cannot do that right now. Like we and so there are this it's, it is. You do have to balance that, and, and I think you have to have a pulse on it. Um, but I, I wish that I wish that I'd, young entrepreneurs didn't have to hear, especially very early on in business building, mm -hmm. when your ideas are the freshest, when you're most energized about them, when you're most excited. It's really hard to get inside of a thing. Sometimes you you get in. There's been times when I and I have been. You know, in the year, year and a half now that we've been doing this thing, there are months where you're just like, I'm just not excited. I'm not, I don't have the energy, right? And it's hard to be creative then. It's hard to come up with ideas. It's hard to, it's hard to even think, right? So I wish, you know, in the early stages of startup that um, there were more mentors, more um, business building workshops or business plan workshops that encouraged folks to really just use all of that energy and dive and think about all manner of things. Um, that ends up being the lifeblood of your business when you're in it and you're finding yourself challenged and thinking about where else can I go? Because then you can say, man, what, what was I thinking? What was it that energized me at the time? Whereas if you start out thinking, I've got these three things, 10 years, five years down the line, if you're trying to think about how can I be creative about you know this thing that I'm doing, it's hard, it's really hard. But we're in it now, you're, you know, and we've always said from the beginning, right, Rofi was about the coffee, the coffee experience. Rofi was about the books and the curation. We're also interested in our space as a, as a, as a potential, um, as, as one that can stretch for the arts. Um, what does it look like as a, as a music venue? What does it look like? And we've always had, we've always, we haven't always been able to actualize it to push the button on those things, right? Mm -hmm. But when something really interesting comes around and someone is like, I want to, I'm thinking about your space, as like I want to do like live shows here or a live set here. When 
okay, and if the timing is right, we can say, yeah, let's do that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you'll find, and you're not gonna find that in another bookstore. It's very hard to find other, you know, a bookstore that's also doing like live sets, that's mm -hmm. doing NPR-esque things, you know. Mm -hmm. um, an artist can come in and say, I've got, you know, this body of work. Um, what might it look like to collaborate? And so then all of a sudden you have something like the exhibit, the ongoing exhibit that we have with, with Shambo Medina and Naledi and, and, and Shambo kind of bouncing off and playing off of each other and curating books to art and art to books in that way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when we think about the, all of a sudden we think about a bookstore as a traveling bookstore. What does it look like for Rofiwa to go to whatever like African literature festival is happening happening in Berlin? Like we can think about that. And I don't know that there are other bookstores that are like, okay, what do we look like in Berlin, right? What do we look like when we are attending um, this festival that's happening in Kenya, and we have our eye on that. I mean, we've been really constrained by the pandemic, mm -hmm. but those are the kinds of things. And, and then what does network and capacity building look like when we stretch it to, to when we are literally doing the world of like, it, uh, the work, excuse me, of, in, in, we talk about in the, in the selection being global, right? Mm -hmm. What does it look like to take this bookstore global and to build those networks and to actually do it? Um, you know, we we have we have this coffee program, and we're thinking about, wow, we would love to take our employees on sourcing trips. We would like to to get to understand coffee. We are building partnerships or like relationships with people who are black roasters who are all over the world, mm -hmm. um, in Canada, in, in in Kenya again. So, those are the kinds of things that like it's exciting. It excites us. We're not always able to do them all at the same time. Um, I'm really proud of how Naledi and I have built the business because we've been, we've been able to build it in a way where we retain a lot of our autonomy, 100% of our autonomy, because yeah. one, um, we crowdfunded, um, but also because we do all of these things, we've been able to access, we've been able to apply to grants and get them, right? Mm -hmm. We've been, um, we've, we've tapped our, our parents, we've tapped our communities. Um, for help, you know, in, in like these very early stages, and that also means that we have a lot of creative direction. Um, it's a it's a, it's a different kind of thinking that you can do when you don't have to make a loan payment yeah. at the end of the month. Um, and so that's been really exciting. Um, but it means that like we have been able to retain a lot of the energy that we that we had starting out. We've been able to direct it. We've been able to know when. This makes sense to do right now. Maybe not. Let's pull back. But we have our eye on it. It might work. Or in this, you know, five months down the line, someone comes in and they, you know, propose something. I'm like, oh, actually, this might. This is a, a good time for us to do this now. And so then we push forward that way. But I, we've we've never, we've never had to. We haven't um, approached making Rofiwa as a as a, as an exercise in paring down. Mm -hmm. um, and if anything, it's an exercise in, in, in expanding, expanding sustainably mm -hmm. and expanding strategically yeah. um, and, and allowing ourselves to do all the things if that's what we want to do mm -hmm. and learning to fail if that's what we have to do yeah. and being um, not even surprised, but surprised, um, but also affirmed when we do succeed. And I'm, I'm thankful that we've had, I'm thankful that we've had more wins than losses yeah. in the last year. I don't know if that answers your question. I will add that it also means you have to work hard at finding money. I think that's something you don't emphasize enough. Mm -hmm. That it's hard work to write the grants, 
to constantly, Bev does a great job of finding grants. And then together we do a lot of work in writing grants, mm -hmm. in, in writing them in ways that get you grants. That's a lot of work. Yeah. That's a lot of nights not sleeping because you have a deadline. But you also are actively in the business, right. but you're also grant writing. So and that's pitching, which and, is a and whole pitching different kind and of learning. You know, we yeah. have to learn how to pitch. I, there's a whole other world of like pitching your business, and which is different from grant writing, right? Because you know, we can do grant writing, um, and Naledi and I, between the two of us, I think you can figure it out. Um, but we learned a whole new skill in the last year about how to pitch, you know, and we were able to do it successfully um, and get some funding that way. But those are the kinds of things, like I said, yeah. that like if you're, if you're just paring down and if you're just doing call, it would have been very hard to pitch right. Rufio in the way we did at Black Ambition um, if it was just a coffee shop. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like you guys kind of had the dream and then you reverse engineered it versus like having a goal per se, a monetary goal or a life goal, and then figuring out what is the most strategic way I can get there by focusing on that. Um, and I think there's something definitely to be said about not limiting how all of you can show up in your business, right? Mm -hmm. Not limiting what parts of you show up in your business. Um, and so I do kind of want to end on just a note of kind of combining what now that it keeps enforcing, which is like, this is work, this is not just dreaming, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, there, but there is something to be said about dreaming. And now suddenly she's the realist. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my god. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's good though. I think, you know, when we talk about diversifying income streams for entrepreneurs, especially creative entrepreneurs like yourselves, you know, traditionally what people think about in the public space and the popular spaces affiliate marketing. It is brand partnerships so working with more established yeah. businesses and stuff like that mm -hmm. um, that just so happen to coincide with what the work that you're doing. It is, you know, doing a course, you know, monetizing your skills mm -hmm. rather than monetizing the dream itself mm -hmm. and the work that you're doing right now. Um, and so for you, and I love that you touched on grants. I, I don't think that artists and creators think enough about grants. Mm -hmm. And I wish that we talked more about this on this show even. So I'm part of it. You mm -hmm. know, I haven't really touched on how people have fundraised for businesses. Mm -hmm. Because not everybody's coming out with like, oh, I've been in, you know, the corporate space, the public space 20 years. I've been married. I can save a lot more than a single person mm -hmm. who's fresh out of college, still young, probably mm -hmm. has student loans, like has other things to think about than, you know, okay, I got 30 grand to throw out of business, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have that, wow. Yeah, exactly. exactly, you know, or like I can, I can, you know, I can fool around and I can make mistakes because, mm -hmm. you know, I know I have the money to float me or I can always mm -hmm. go back mm -hmm. um, to the corporate world or to doing something else. Um, and so I think uh, I really would love to just hear your take on really how you guys have, uh, I guess, just mentally managed and um, literally managed a business while also understanding that that business is not done, that business is not complete. There's definitely more aspects, more facets to or for your book cafe than what is there now. And so kind of just kind of pacing yourself as you kind of realize these different avenues that are available to you in your business? Well, I think that it's important to say that sometimes you don't manage, that there are some months where you are just depressed, right? Like, I mean, yeah. you're just depressed. 
and I've been saying this a lot the last couple, like the last month or two, um, there have been times where both Naledi and I have been just, just depressed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and not, you know, and that's the thing, life happens, your life happens even as your business is happening. So, um, and I think that that's okay to say. I don't think, I don't think enough people say to you, sometimes you're depressed and you don't get out of bed and you don't place the order and you don't make the call or you don't send the emails and you get to the end of the week and you haven't done anything and now you're working 20 hours to try and make up for it and some things fall through the cracks and maybe you have to apologize to a couple of your customers. And maybe you lose a few relationships. You lose a few time. relationships because you've been, you've been in, a, in, in whatever that you've been in. And so I think it's okay to say that sometimes you don't manage and sometimes you find yourself having to triage because you haven't been able to manage. Um, I'm grateful Naledi and I are in partnership, you know, in the business end of it, but also we are in partnership, in a romantic partnership, um, and, um, oh, and in a friendship as well. Mm -hmm. So in, in those moments that have been, where we've both been down, it's, it's um, maybe someone on that particular day has a little bit extra to give, even as they're going through their own thing, you know. In days where she has a little bit extra to give, months where she has a little bit extra to give, even if she's you know going through her own thing, and you know, and vice versa. Um, I've been saying to folks, you find yourself having to run payroll when you're depressed. There's nothing more humbling. <laughs> like I'm serious. I'm so. I was so humbled. <laughs> I'm so humbled because you know I have been. I've been in corporate. Mm -hmm. Not not like. Executive corporate, just like down here corporate. <laughs> down here corporate. <laughs> regular people corporate. Like regular people corporate. I, you know what I mean? I'm not, not C-level corporate, but just, you know, like, I'm picking up the phone. How are you doing, corporate? Um, and I've been that, so I've, you know, and, I, and I've been making enough money to, like, you know, pay my mortgage, go out and get a drink, maybe save at the end of, you know. So, you know, and, and, when you're in the kind of the the chug of it and you know everybody oh my gosh you know i don't think our workplaces prioritize mental health enough which they don't um it's it's very interesting to be inside that conversation on the other side when you're like deteriorating inside like <laughs> low level corporate and you're like yeah they don't care they don't give you know and then suddenly you are a business owner <laughs> And you are depressed. And it's Monday, and it's 1.45, and you have 15 minutes to pay your employees and to make sure that they get their money on time. Mm -hmm. What a humbling experience. <laughs> I've never been so humbled. I remember being like, what is, I'm feeling so much, right? I am both depressed, but I'm also like, I've got to pay folks because they're depressed. Um, and it's just... <laughs> And and yeah, I it, it you know wow that was um, that was an interesting time. But yeah, sometimes you have to run payroll depressed, and that's a whole that's a whole different feeling. Mm -hmm. um, I think that so that was my monologue on sometimes you don't manage. But the other thing that I um, that I want to say is that we've had to learn to um, learn oh learning that like sometimes you'll have bad days bad weeks and bad months and managing your um your mentals in that mm -hmm. space that's a lesson too like right in we opened may 15 2020 
in June, when we were having bad days, I was hyperventilating. I'm like, I can't even look at the reports. I'm not doing that kind of, you know. But then by September, we could have bad days, and I'd be like, okay, you know, it's like I'm looking at. And then you learn to look at the averages. You look, you learn to look at like the monthly, t you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you have your first bad month, and then you're like, oh my god, um, you know. And then then you have to manage your anxiety, and then suddenly you build the muscle for like managing a bad month. What do yeah. we do when when we're down this month? What are the other things that we can do? How can we go out there and generate? Revenue, or how can we focus? How can we focus inside, and and you know whatever, um, and so that's a muscle. Those are things that you learn and you you build the capacity for inside the thing. And I, I there's no I couldn't have business planned my way out of those feelings. Um, so some of that some of that is some of that is just learning mm -hmm. and doing it, and being and learning to let go yeah. of criticizing yourself and having that be a, a reflection on like. Your, your personhood um, and just rolling with, yeah, it's business. I, I learned that. I learned what it means for like it's business and sometimes that's, that's what happens. And, but you can do little things about how you manage that. Those are lessons mm -hmm. um, that we've learned. And uh, I think that in, in the moments there are certain pockets where you are able to see very clearly why this thing excites you. Mm -hmm. And when you're able to access those feelings, I think really allowing yourself to get lost in that is important because you might wake up the next day and have to run payroll. Um, and, and so I think, it's, I think that you manage many different ways. I think you don't manage. I think that you learn, that you have to learn, that some of it is the exercise of being. Um, I think that you seek out, um, I'm learning now more than ever, the importance of, of seeking out, um, not necessarily mentorship, but seek, allowing yourself to make conversation with other business owners, mm -hmm. um, I find, and, and mm -hmm. listening to other people talk about the terrible months that they're having. January was a horrible month for everyone. But I tell you what, it was so encouraging to hear other business owners say, my gosh, yeah. Um, we didn't have enough to pay our staff this month, and so we had to make some. And then you, you know, all of a sudden you start to feel like, okay, mm. it's not just, it's not me. That's really encouraging. You learn to manage by leaning on business networks. Mm -hmm. um, you learn to manage by like, you know what? I'm going to do some more ideating, some planning, some idea stuff in this time that we're just going through it. Um, and then you get a therapist. And if you can afford one, yes. <laughs> if you can, because that, that, that helps a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that, like, yeah, I think destigmatizing, having, um, de like, actually having transparent. I've had to learn that. One of the, my, 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 my grievances when I, when I went into entrepreneurship is everything was so opaque. Like people don't want to talk about how much they made. They don't want to talk about where they made it or how they went. Girl. They don't want to talk about how they made that business plan or who they went to or who their accountant was. And I was like, I'll never do that. But then I found myself in a year and a half being like, you know, we just we made enough money. So I'm, I'm having to unlearn like being, you know, being an opaque. Being yeah, being guarded and being an opaque you know, business person myself, I'm learning right now to talk about some of the, the, like this moment is one where I'm learning to not be this like cryptic business person who just like all of a sudden overnight I had it. All of the things that I needed to make it a successful business or I don't even know if it's successful because it's year one, but I hope it is, you know, I hope it will be. Um, and so learning to, um, to speak transparently to yeah. the extent possible about what it means to be inside of this thing is also very cathartic. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's one way that I manage. Yeah.
You know what my favorite part is? <laughs> Those moments when I am emotionally incapacitated <laughs> and Wudumelo has to kind of figure out the book situation. Mm. Or Wudumelo has had to leave the country because there was a family emergency. Mm. And I'm suddenly doing operations mm. and trying to figure out all the stuff that Wudumelo does. But that only works, I think, because we are not inside a traditional structure mm. that assumes that this is Wudumelo's lane mm. and this is my lane. And there is no way that the two of us can you know, overlap. Yeah, overlap. And, and so we're constantly attentive to what the other person is doing. Mm -hmm. We're constantly attentive to where they want to go in the business, where they want the particular thing that they do in the business to go. And we're always sharing around what it is that we hope to do. So we always have sight of what the other person is doing. And I think that's been very important for those moments where, where I, I just cannot. And so it's not what I would do. <laughs> but also, then Wittemann is also developing a, a, a curatorial muscle, right? They're able to dream things for a particular, you know, section of the shelf and make a thing that is interesting it's in math, a different it's way. Mathematic. Right? And then I, I, I do math. I yeah. might need three more. <laughs> you say, why would you do it that way? Why wouldn't you? Yeah. And then I go into the business end and I'm like, well, I mean, I just didn't like that. <laughs> so then I did something different. And then, you know, they look at it and they're like, oh, actually, that, that is a much more interesting way to do it. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think there's that too when you don't have a traditional structure that just allows this much more fluent collaboration that enables you to lean on one another in moments when a person just can't do it that day. And I also think, I'll add this because I think we don't say it, but I also think it's important that one of the things that is really great about having a non-traditional, maybe a more expansive uh, approach and structure is that you also allow your team to see yeah. you in um, in a, in, in a, uh, a much more dynamic light, right? So like, our team members know when I'm going through it, right? And we can, like, they, and I know when they're going through it, and we can talk about that. I'd be like, are you in a good mood today? Because like, we've got to get this thing done. And so if you're not in a good mood, that's okay. But then I have, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it also means that our team members can sometimes take it upon themselves to rise to the occasion in really interesting and creative ways when they're like, okay, these two are, oh, they've been up all night. You know, they've been at the store since last night. Yeah, and um, they'll tell us to go to sleep. They'll tell us to go to sleep. And so it's it's really interesting that like these are the folks your 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 team cares about you or your employees care about you in a different way where when they can see you um, as something other than like a suit in an office that is processing paperwork, mm -hmm. right? When we can work, a lot of times we're working together to meet the demands of our lives. So I'm gonna be like, I need to go walk my dog. Mm -hmm. So um, how does how do you? think about staffing when you have an employee who has to work walk her dog because you know her mom just had knee surgery and can't do it you know how does so what do you do how do you all come together as a family a work family to make it to make it work right what 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 does it look like when you don't assume well you're here from this time to this time and you can't do you yeah. know what i mean and you can't even do something walking a dog in the middle of the shift in C level and regular people, you know, corporate is a frivolous thing, right? Like you, you couldn't even say that. But what, excuse me, what does it mean to create a work environment that that can expand to meet 
your needs as mm -hmm. as an as an employer, but also when you can be in collaboration with your employees about like what it takes to keep this thing afloat. Because at the end of the day, we eat because of this thing. We are able to pay our bills because of this thing. So someone might be like, okay, I'm gonna clock out. I'm gonna go walk my dog. And I'm gonna come back later tonight for this event so that we can have someone. You know, so it's a much more fluid relationship that we have. And it's not a structure that works for all of our employees. You know, some of our employees really prefer that I come in and I get out and that's okay. They're like, but, I don't want to know what's going on in your life. Yeah. I don't care. Yes. I'm just here from and, this time to this time. And that's okay. And that's okay. Um, but what does it mean when you make a place that, that, that says, and that's okay, and this other thing can happen to, and that other thing can happen to? Because it's the five of us and, and we have to make it work, you know? So. Yeah. Right. Oh man, yes. Oh man, I don't think we're gonna be here all day. I'm trying to, <laughs> trying not to be, but like, one thing I do wanna like highlight that you talked about was you know you're building a romantic partnership, and so a lot of times like I see it in like popular discourse. I'm single. I don't really care about this stuff. But in order to do the conversation, <laughs> like you know, sometimes it's like you know you can't expect a romantic partnership to be 50 50 all the time. Sometimes it's gonna be your 80, their 20. Sometimes it's gonna be their 70, your 30. You know, it kind of that's how it is sometimes because like as it flows, like you're not just your life isn't just this person. It's still you still have things outside of that that are mm -hmm. affecting you and affecting your well being. And it also kind of sounds like that in the business, which is interesting because people often don't apply that to the business or to our other relationships because you guys were saying, like, I feel like from what I have read about, from what I've heard, from other stories that I've heard, that business partnerships, once that last, they typically last because those two people, those three people, those five people have very clearly defined roles that don't overlap, mm -hmm. right? That is not the case for you guys. You know, kind of your romantic fluidity in terms of like helping each other out when somebody may not be able to give also extends to the business part, and that still works, right? You still have your own zone of genius, but you're not going to say no to something just because the other person can't do it, right? Um, and I even see how you guys are kind of picking up cues from each other in terms of operations, in terms of creativity, in terms of curating, in terms of thinking about business, and I would say like. Even with me and my relationship with my sister, I'm very like type A, non, non emotionally expressive person, but she's a very thoughtful person. And I've always kind of wanted to like, how can I be more thoughtful? And she's kind of like, how can I be more academic? How can I be more of that person that's focused and things like that? So like in in our own way as people, I think it's natural for us to kind of see the beauty and the genius in other people and say, well, I know I can't be that person that just like. <laughs> Is, is that I can't be that, but I can pick up certain things that can help me, mm. you know, kind of contribute to that and incorporate that into my own life in my own way. So I think that's really beautiful to, to see in your partnership and hopefully that we start to normalize in other people. Like, it's okay to say, like, man, I see this person is really thoughtful. Man, I see this person is really smart. Man, I see this person is a really good planner. You know, and I want to be, I know I may never be the type A planner who has an itinerary for every vacation, but I can do certain things that can help me in my own life to be better at showing up for myself and showing up for the people around me. So, yeah, I don't know. I think we can end on that, because if not, we're going to be here all day. <laughs> but thank you guys so much for, for coming in. Can you tell people that are watching or viewing how they can patron or fear book cafe, how they can get in touch with you guys on social media and all that good stuff? Yeah. Follow us at Rofiwa Books at Rofiwa Books on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. 
Um, we love or follow. Um, our website is rofiwabooks.com, um, and you can shop um, our selection there. You can soon you'll be able to shop our merch and coffee. Um, so that's coming. Uh, definitely shoot us an email. I think we've got like our catch-all email info at rofiwabooks.com on our on our website as well. Um, we've got some plans for some newsletters, some book club stuff coming soon. So definitely join our mailing list, which is also um, on our website. And if you're in Durham or in the Triangle area, uh, come to 406 South Driver and see what's going on. We're in East Durham, the best neighborhood in the world. Um, and yeah, I think those are those are some quick, fun ways that you can that you can get in touch with us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys so much for coming on this sunny Thank Saturday you. morning. Thank, Thank you so much. Yeah. Appreciate it.